0: I see it, spider. Look! Sello indicates a point halfway up the front of the building, and the spider makes out a glint of red, reflecting the firelight of a half-dozen small fires in the ruined street, shining through shattered plaster. She knows better than to express the exasperation she feels. What am I looking at, Sello? Countermeasures, the saboteur grins. Source of the blast. Powerful blasting gem, looks like. Hooked up with a proximity trigger and advanced targeting capabilities. Multiple targets for the look of this. He indicates the red ruin that had once, presumably, been several people. Not alchemical. Evocation. Abjuration. Very expensive. Interesting, but we can worry about how the doctor paid for it later. What I want to know is how we can get past it. The bony saboteur hunkers down into his greatcoat, lips pursed. Depends, depends, he mutters, mostly to himself. What conjurations we used, that's the question. That will determine what we can use to destroy or disrupt the targeting or the trigger mechanisms. The spider sighs. As useful as they undeniably are, Sallow is just as bad as tatters in this regard show those two hammers a problem, and every solution inevitably looks like a nail. For all their efficacy, their specialist technical skill sets do tend to result in a certain rigidity of thinking. Or we could just avoid it, if that's the blasting gem on the front of the shop, what's to stop us going around, or in this case, over? She indicates the ruin of an adjacent building, affording comparatively easy access to the rooftop of Dr. Krop's Chemical emporium. Come on, Salo, we're going climbing. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using the Blades in the Dark rule set, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning the following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, Tatters and Valerian found themselves trapped in the worst wedding ever. With the machine cult-induced slaughter underway and a zombie outbreak tearing through the acme of the Kairos ruling classes, it didn't seem as though things could possibly get any worse, and that the zombies caught fire. And yet, from the brink of disaster, Tatters clawed it back. She seized psychic control of the zombies and used them to break out of the trap, which would have been great had it not been for the arrival of a new threat, the skin of the machine their fallen comrade, Flint. Meanwhile, amidst the war-torn streets of the Mercer's Quarter, their allies, Sallow and the Spider, continue on their mission to recover Dr. Crop. Give me a moment, Sallow, I'm not as young as I used to be. The Spider leans against the chimney stack, struggling to get her heart rate back below a jackhammer. There's a damned good reason she lets the younger, fitter members of the crew tackle these sorts of physical missions. Scrambling about on rooftops is far more Trace's speed than hers. But, needs must, when the devil drives, and there's nothing to be gained from complaining about it. She just has to get her breath back. Sallow, who has been rummaging through his many pockets and pulling out an assortment of volatile-looking paraphernalia, shakes his head. ''You really think we should get moving now, Spider?'' The spider flaps a hand at him, irritated. A moment, I said. What's the sudden rush? A wide-eyed sallow merely points in reply, and she turns to look. Two bricks in the chimney stack blink back at her. What the... With a clattering and a scraping, the stack begins to reconstruct itself, bricks sliding and slotting into strange new configurations, until, instead of the tall column of a chimney, a sort of squat armoured block of bricks perched on six stumpy legs stands perched on the roof before them. Two disconcertingly human-looking eyes peer out at them, and twin, undulating arms of floating bricks emerge from either side of the construct's carapace. The spider stumbles back, fighting to keep her balance on the rain-slicked slate and the steep slope of the rooftop. It's a fight she's in the process of losing until Sallow reaches out and grabs her cloak, yanking her to one side just as a fusillade of bricks go hurtling by. The brick behemoth rotates in place, crab-like, then scuttles rapidly towards them, sending the pair perilously close to the rooftop edge. The spider catches a brief glimpse of the cobblestones three stories below and spits out a panicked curse. This is doing nothing to bring her heart rate down. Before she can begin to formulate a plan, Sallow has calmly stepped forward, performed a series of rapid calculations on the fingers of one hand, and tossed a spherical crystal vial filled with glowing blue liquid high into the air. Get down, he yells, as the orb describes a parabolic arc sailing up and over the brick beast and landing barely an inch behind it. The resulting detonation launches the pile of bricks into the air, flipping it over their startled heads and clear off the roof. The spider gazes down in astonishment as it smashes to pieces on the ground below. Almost before she has processed the start of the attack, it's all over. She grins at Sallow, hand on his shoulder. Magnificent work, Sallow. You know, some problems really are nails, and a hammer is precisely what you need. If Sallow has any idea what she's talking about, he doesn't show it. Instead, he's scowling up at the scorch mark his explosive device has made on the slate tiles. Not so magnificent, Spider, he turns to her with an apologetic shrug. That grenade was what I was planning to use to blow a hole in the roof. Last one. Going to need a new way in. So we take a step away from the joys of matrimony, fire and zombies and head instead onto the mean streets of the Mercers' Quarter. When we last saw Sallow and the Spider, they were trying to figure out how to break into Dr. Crop's alchemical shop whilst avoiding getting caught up in the factional war raging through the streets with a view to rescuing slash kidnapping the good doctor and returning him to a safe place, wherever that may be. After some set dressing, courtesy of the scene start oracle, the team began to make moves, which of course led them directly into trouble. The brick crab monster was the result of Spider getting a success with a consequence on a survey action roll, specifically an obstacle or threat with a picture of an armoured crab. I decided I wasn't particularly interested in a drawn-out fight at this point, and so I elected to not give that crab a danger clock, but instead had Sallow make a single pushed wreck action roll to defeat it. Given that this was a bit of a sidetrack from the main goal, I reduced the effect to one. Again, I got a success with a consequence, which this time turned out to be reduced effect, down from one to zero, meaning that all this encounter did was use up some valuable stress and move the quest no further forward. I chose to interpret all of that in the fiction as used-up resources. Using Sallow's grenade had saved their skins, but presented them with a new challenge. Before we find out how they try to overcome it, I want to take a moment to reflect on how we got here, and what that might mean for what comes next, With so many moving parts in a game like this, it can be difficult to keep all of the various plot threads in mind, and so, from time to time, it's useful to track back and have yourself a refresher. That can help with interpreting Oracle results in a way that better draws upon the fleshed-out, established context. I think the fact that I'm needing to do this highlights one of the things I've missed most about the Mythic GM emulator the way that you build up NPC and thread lists, which can then be called upon by random events. I've enjoyed using the Alone in the Dark Picture Oracle quite a lot, but that is definitely one element where I think Mythic shines. Anyway, how did we get here? Well, you may recall that all of this kicked off with the revelation, back in Series 2, Chapter 5, that Mina's old mentor, Dr. Crop, was the one who supplied the unseen with the pathogen that killed Mina's old boss, the Whisperer. Not only that, but the spider was aware of this fact, and she found herself forced to share that intelligence with the future-gazing singer, Heart of Snow. Now it may be that the doctor was an unwilling, or an unwitting, participant in this assassination. That remains to be seen. It is also unclear how the spider came by his identity. What we do know is that Heart of Snow was extremely interested in learning this news, though again, we don't know why. And then, in Chapter 8, Valerian stated that the whole reason the Web were fighting the machine cult and the Unseen was because Dr. Krop had informed them that the Unseen were backing the cult. And so, in Chapter 9 of this season, the Spider initiated a mission to recover the Doctor. Despite the fact that his place of business, the Mercer's Quarter, had descended into a 12-way war zone as a result of the not-so-flying casino that she and her crew had crash-landed there. I think that brings us up to speed. Of course, there are several other pressing questions, such as what is going on between the Unseen and the Cult, given that the Cult's attack on the wedding seems to have royally screwed with the Unseen's master plan, but for now, that feels a bit more peripheral. So, with all of those elements in mind, let's see what fate has in store for our heroes next. Next. The spider smiles. No need to be so downhearted, my friend. Did you really think I'd come unprepared? She digs into her satchel, pulls out an identical grenade to the one Sallow has just used, and tosses it over to the startled saboteur, with a shrug of her own. A lady should never leave home without high explosives at her disposal. Have you seen the state of the city these days? Though I do have to say, if your last grenade didn't blow a hole in the roof, I'm not sure why this one will. It's cellos turn to grin. All in the deployment, spider. Watch. He kneels, extracting several small tools from a variety of pockets, and proceeds to first attach a pair of shielded wires to the top of the grenade, and then prise out a couple of slate tiles from the roof. In moments, the grenade is packed into the cavity, covered, and the wires uncoiled until they are both a safe distance away. You'll probably want to lie down for this next big spider, and cover your ears. The wire ends are stripped, then touched, and there is a deafening explosion that sends tiles and debris hurtling overhead, and when the dust clears, the spider can see a jagged hole, blown clean through the roof and into the attic below. But that's not all she sees. Standing, silhouetted by the fires tearing through the district, arrayed above them along the ridge of the aporium rooftop, are a row of masked figures. They are clad in the distinctive pale blue and pristine white of the Order of Droom, but these are like no seekers of knowledge the spider has ever seen before. Their robes are tightly wrapped at ankle and wrist, and feature shaped panels of body armor in boiled blue leather. None bear weapons, but all carry the unmistakable aura of danger. These are plainly elite warriors. Oh, hell, the spider whispers to Sallow. I have a horrible feeling we've just attracted the attention of the Enlightenment. Devotees of Droom are, in the main, a pretty unimposing-looking lot. One can typically expect bent backs, ink-stained fingers, liver-spotted, balding heads and half-moon spectacles. That's not to say that they're not dangerous or powerful. If ever proof were needed that knowledge is power and that the pen is mightier than the sword, one need look no further than the Seekers'. But within every powerful organization, from time to time, there is a need for hard power to accompany the soft. A need for a team of ruthless, uniquely talented enforcers, utterly devoted to the cause. And in all of Kairos, few are more feared than the enlightenment of Droon. One of their number, tall and powerfully built, calls out in tones of grudging admiration. It is just the way you said the obstacle has been removed and the path has been opened. Our way is clear. The spider, confused, replies, I told you no such thing, but if you imagine for one moment we're letting you anywhere near this hole, you have another thing coming. The voice that responds does not come from the Enlightenment. Rather, it comes from behind the Spider and Sallow, from the rooftop on the far side of the street. It is a voice that is depressingly familiar. I did say we would meet again, little spider, and that your path was not the one that you thought it was. And so it has transpired. Heart of Snow stands and spreads powerful arms wide in triumph. Now perhaps you begin to realize, in truth, you are not a spider, nor have you ever been. You are but a fly and you and yours are now hopelessly tangled in the true web, that of fate. This little spider is the doom I sing for you. Hooray! Once again, our narrative train has jumped the tracks of predictability and gone veering off the edge of a cliff into deadly and unexpected peril. And yet? It does tie together, just like the Doomsinger's web of fate. that you just love it when that happens? This calamitous turn of events is a clear illustration of the importance of framing when envisaging the fiction of a scene. Because I'd spent some time prior to the scene thinking about what had come before, I was primed when the opportunity arose to tie prior threads into the present story. All of this story development came from just one action, and then a consequence – And then two rolls on the oracle tables. Just four dice rolls in total. Firstly, Salo made a tinker roll assisted by the spider to rig a grenade to blow a hole in the roof. The result was success with a consequence, and the consequence was end up in a worse position. Things had suddenly got a lot more dangerous, but why? So of course I asked what made the position more dangerous, and the picture oracle gave me an hourglass and a picture that looked a bit like a map of an invasion. Taken together, the interpretation seemed fairly obvious. The Doomsinger's forces now had access to the Doctor's stronghold. Next, I asked the picture oracle to tell me a bit about the Doomsinger's forces, and I was rewarded with a picture of a comb and a sun emerging from behind a planet. I stared at those two images for maybe two straight minutes, before saying, What the fuck? Seriously, a a comb? Those pictures just made no sense to me. Absolute and utter nonsense. And yet... That emerging sun prodded at me. It whispered in my ear, and what it said was, Give in. Give in to temptation. You know you want to. And given that I can resist everything except temptation... I turned to my shiny new copy of Sean Tompkins' magnificent new creation, The Incomparable Ironsworn Starforged, and I poured lovingly over the oracle tables therein, and I'm so glad I did. Because all it took was two rolls on those tables, and a whole new set of possibilities opened up. Which just goes to demonstrate an important principle of solo RPGing, if the rules aren't working, do not hesitate to change them. First, I rolled on the character First Look oracle, and I got Uncanny. And then I rolled on the character Role oracle, and got Scholar. Uncanny Scholars. Well, I knew who they were right away. I guess it makes sense that Heart of Snow and the Seekers would join forces, and that he would be the one leading the team. Just imagine how valuable a seer with the power to glance into the future might be to a religious order based on the accumulation of knowledge. And imagine how much power that value might bestow. As to what the Seekers might be doing up here with the Heart of Snow on the Doctor Crop's rooftop, well, we can only speculate at this point, but as it turns out, their interest in the Doctor has been foreshadowed. There was one small detail I'd forgotten about in my little recap of the history of Doctor Crop, A small detail that was easy to overlook, but which, in light of my Starforged Oracle roles, potentially takes on far more significance. When Krop was telling Mina about how he neutralised the infernal powder, he said the following. I was able to engage the services of a devotee of Droom who cast a blessing on the substance. And then he said, You know those Drumiums, always on the hunt for knowledge they can turn to their own purposes. Now, I have spoken before about the importance of weaving story threads together, and of finding links between seemingly distinct plot lines when the opportunity presents itself. And here's a case in point. Not only are the seekers of Droom in some way already tied to the target of this quest, but they are also tied to the wider mission of the web, to stymie the unseen. Back in Series 2, Chapter 8, when she and Valerian were explaining how Mina and Tristan's wedding was a ploy by the Unseen to prosecute a devastating aerial war on the League of Free States, the Spider dropped this little speculative bombshell. One or more of the Seekers of Droom, House Teref and House Montessario, have been compromised by the Unseen. Anyhow, the scene is set, the antagonists stand revealed, even if their goal remains shrouded in mystery, the prize is tantalisingly close, but the danger levels just went off the charts. Can Sallow and the spider succeed? Hell, can they even survive? Why don't we find out? Heart of snow. Pleasure, as always. It really is a credit to the spider that she doesn't spit or choke on her own words. Now, there really is no need for unpleasantness. I'm sure that whatever goals we each have, if we talk things through, we can reach a happy compromise. The warriors of the Enlightenment gaze at her with ill-concealed contempt, which is fortunate, because that means they're not gazing at Sallow when he drops his flashbang. By the time they have blinked the dancing spots from their eyes, Sallow and the spider are gone, vanished into the smoke. The pair drop through the hole in the roof, hit the attic floor and tear down the rickety wooden staircase, Sallow digging through his pockets and hurling anything he finds there behind him. Caltrops, fire oil, smoke bombs, coins, boiled sweets. At this point, pretty much anything will do, and there is no time to be discerning. Not with stone-cold killers like the Enlightenment close on their heels. They sprint down the corridor, flames erupting behind them, checking empty rooms as they pass. Nothing. Down another set of stairs, the sound of furious shouting and pounding footsteps behind them to yet more empty rooms. Down a final staircase, throwing knives thudding into woodwork behind them, and then they burst through a door and into the doctor's shop. It is as silent and devoid of life as the rest of the building, the gas lamps left unlit. "'Damn it! Where is he?' the spider gasps. "'Sallow, secure the door! There must be some clue to his whereabouts here somewhere!' Her eyes alight on a cream envelope propped up on the shop counter. Written upon it, in elegant cursive text, are the words, Read Me. She has the envelope torn open in an instant, even as the doors burst in and the hapless sallow is knocked back and off of his feet. Warriors of the Enlightenment, scorched and furious, spill into the room like a swarm of angry hornets. In desperation, the spider scans the content of the letter. It reads, To whom it may concern, I had rather hoped to keep my little shop. But if you are reading this, then sadly you have just triggered its destruction. Such a pity. Well-appointed property is so hard to find in this city. Yours faithfully, Dr E. B. Krop. Exterior shot. Late at night. Dr. Krop's alchemical emporium stands dark and shuttered, lit by the light of a dozen small fires that burn in Tinker's Row. From down the street... The sounds of distant battle can be heard. Beat. And then the entire three story building erupts in a raging fireball, blasted utterly apart into a hundred thousand fragments of brick, wood, and glass. When at long, long last, the smoke and the dust clears, only rubble remains. Oh dear. That's not exactly how I pictured that scene going. Wow. So, what the hell happened there? Things seemed pretty dire last scene, but that just really escalated hugely. To the point where it looks like I just killed my party. Things started well enough with a successful finesse roll to gain some ground on the Enlightenment. But then... Well, you know what? What then? is going to have to wait for another time. Instead, I want to talk briefly about a couple of other topics. John Harper, the creator of Blades in the Dark, created a video recently about how Blades' actions differ to the normal task-by-task rhythm typical of D&D and similar, more traditional RPGs. I've put a link to that video in the show notes. But in brief, John outlines that in Blades, rather than just performing a series of discrete tasks each action should have a defined goal a clear and interesting threat that makes the action challenging and then a means to achieve the stated goal the inclusion of the threat then makes it easier to identify what consequence might be if the role is a failure or a partial success now i've mostly been doing that as I've played, but I think there probably is more room to put greater focus on the threat when preparing to take the action roll. The way I've implemented Blades as a solo game, with the consequence oracle applied after the action roll, has worked pretty well for me so far. But there's no harm, I think, in envisaging my action rolls with a bit more of an explicit sense of what's at stake before I make the roll. I'll experiment with doing that a bit more from now on. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is less mechanical and more setting related. With the arrival and subsequent immolation of the Enlightenment, a sort of special forces ninja scholar team, it seems like this is a good opportunity to touch on worship in the Chained World setting. I touched on this way back in Chapter 10 of Series 1, but I didn't really go into much detail. Time for a bit more, I think. There are no gods in this setting at least not in the traditional D&D sense. Instead, the peoples of the Chained World worship entities they call the Colossi. And the more martial worshippers of the Colossi, at least the ones we've seen so far, like Cadmus and the Enlightenment, tend to be more like fighting monks than warrior clerics. You may have heard characters make reference to the Keys, or the Singers, or the Seven. Each of those terms refers to the Colossi. The seven keys are seven 300-metre-tall colossi forged from black iron. Each sings in one of the seven different keys. Each has eyes that glow in one of the seven different colours of the rainbow. It is claimed at the start of time that the seven keys together sang the world into existence. These seven singers walk the world, seemingly oblivious of the destructive impact of their passage or even the existence of the mortal races but this has not prevented endless speculation throughout history about the true nature of these impassive constructs. Great superstition and myth surround the Colossi, and over the millennia, various belief systems, cults and religions have sprung up around them. And of course, countless wars have been fought over conflicting interpretations of what the Colossi represent. These days, things are comparatively settled, The mortal races have largely reached consensus on the names and the nature of each of the colossi, particularly in the expansive Kairas dominion, and established religions have sprung up around each of them. Though in truth, no more is known today about the true nature of these enigmatic beings than when man first laid eyes on one. We've encountered a few of the religions aligned with the colossi already, and perhaps we'll encounter more. We know that Katniss is a follower of Ankra, associated with life. The Trace praised a foe for the trickster when things get tough. We saw a shrine to Gora, embodiment of war down in the blood pits. I briefly mentioned Surtis, who represents nature at one point, and of course we know all about the seekers of Drum. Perhaps the most appropriate colossi to focus on right now though, in light of what's just happened, is Bran. Mina found a path to the underpipes in the necropolis of Bran, and now it would seem that the occupants of Dr. Krop's emporium have their own appointment with the Deathwalker. However, we're going to have to wait a little bit before we get into all that. First, we need to pay a visit to Crater and Trace over in the docks. Surely things are going better for them? We'll find out next time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com Or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. i also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.